0: Our scripture passage this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It can be found on page 1160 of the Pew Bible, if you'd like to read along. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh... Of Christ let
1: us pray father God we pray that your message is clear this morning that through the Word of God we are blessed to see something and remember something glorious about the gift that we have received in Christ Jesus do this accomplish this in the glorious name of Christ through the power of your spirit so that we might delight in being sons and daughters of our Father in heaven I ask this in Jesus name Amen. Last weekend was the official start of spring. Actually, to be more precise, Saturday, March 20th, at 5.37 a.m. Eastern Time, apparently the sun's rays moved from the majority of them being on the southern hemisphere, and more centered on the, summer, some, uh, the southern hemisphere of the equator, to being in the northern hemisphere. Which means that we're going to begin to see new life around us. And it means for those of you with a green thumb, you're going to begin to start planting and start growing. And yet to do that, you're going to actually do something likely if you are an experienced gardener. That is quite strange. That is quite odd. For your most precious plants, for those that you most desire to see grow, you are going to begin collecting and gathering manure. Some of you will fill your cars with manure. Some of you then will take this manure out of your car and begin to dive in with your hands and begin to spread manure all around your house, outside. thing who was the first person that looked at a pile of manure and said you know what the plants that grow by the manure they grow stronger the vegetables they taste better these sorts of things who was this first person who realized that and yet a little bit of this passage really the first two verses are going to have the Apostle Paul in one sense looking and telling us to remember a little bit about the manure in our own life before we knew Christ Jesus. Because really, in doing that, we begin to grow and to receive and to recall and to remember something better. This is why I don't have a green thumb. I just don't like to deal with manure out there. So in our passage today, the Apostle Paul begins with his own request for us to remember, and in remembering part, it's his own way to recall how uh, we, in one sense, were in a manure pile at first. He begins with, remember there was a time, Gentiles, you were outside of Christ. You were separated from God. In modern vernacular, remember there was a time where you were not a Christian. But that isn't all he says. He he says, remember that in your flesh you were called the uncircumcision, which is an odd thing for an apostle to say because that's a fairly personal subject to talk about. However, the apostle begins by saying, remember there was a time where physically, where spiritually, you were not aligned with the principles of God. That ritually you were an outsider. That ethnically you were an outsider. And this was a sore subject for the early church, because it was all too common for ethnic Jews, even those converts to Christianity at times, as we'll see when our Sunday school begins to look at the book of Romans, and pagan Gentiles, for them to, even when they're converted and in communities together, during the life of apostles, fight about things like circumcision. These differing groups would come together under the banner of the New Testament community and do one of those most common pastimes in all of culture, draw lines and divisions between one another in order to make one group feel ashamed and another group feel esteemed. Humanity has always been addicted to segregating groups for one reason or another. This was true in the Apostles' day, And if you brave the news networks, it is still true in our day. In Paul's time, Jews often ethnically mocked those whose physical bodies lacked the mark of faithfulness the Old Testament rituals required. And Paul knew all about this mocking that they would do because the Apostle Paul, before he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, much of what kept him busy in life was making sure that the Jewish faith did not intermix not only with Jesus, but also Gentiles. Paul, for a time, was basically the world's greatest ringleader of sowing divisions between ethnic groups, between Jews and Christians, or Gentiles. And so it's not surprising that when our God did something amazing in Paul, a miraculous conversion of Christianity's early great opponent to this last apostle... That God, through the power of the Spirit, A. Paul change from a man hell-bent on dividing the world and segregating the church into one heaven-sent and unifying. All their lives found common value and meaning through Jesus, regardless of background or origin. And so, into a humanity that was segregated and separated and often loved to delight in those separations and segregations, the work of God went forth. And as we sit here the morning of Palm Sunday, aren't there parallels that are seen in this overarching story in the final week of Jesus' own mortal life? Let us briefly consider our Savior when he approached Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem and its temple. Well, at first, Jesus was welcomed because they thought, here he is. He's a Messiah. He's one of us. He's one who follows our rituals. He's one who knows our scriptures. He is one who is miraculous. He's all ours. And he'll help crush our enemy, our greatest enemy, which, of course, is the Gentiles. Starting with Rome. He'll crush Rome. Yet what would they soon realize about Jesus? He was uninterested in falling perfectly within their political paradigm. Either the political paradigm of Jerusalem or the political paradigm of Rome. And so by the end of the the final week of his mortal life, they're both willing to crush him and to kill him. Because he won't fall under their narrative. He refuses. So both groups condemn him, beat him, bloody him, cast him out, crucify him, kill him, and discard his body. In part because He refused to pick a side in their divisive games. Both centers of power mattered little to Jesus. And yet the failures of both man-centered powers in Rome and Jerusalem, those man-centered powers meant everything to those who put him to death. In the fact that he was willing to give himself up is seen a greater hope. He was actually intent on making a new base of power for humanity. And it was in, to be founded in heaven itself. And when he comes again, it, of course, will be come upon the earth in a new way. And so both powers, Rome and Israel, Jew and Gentile, united in rejecting Jesus. And yet our Lord, uses the weak things of this world to shame the strong, your Jesus being cut off and cast out, began building a new city, a heavenly one where such divisions and segregating thought would be cast away into the hellish pit that such ideas belong. A new kind of Jerusalem, where those who were unpleasant at first and sooner had qualities found in manure piles could grow into something far more beautiful and far more dynamic to behold. A united citizens of a new Jerusalem who found unity in their diversity, not reasons to separate. Regardless of past sins and family, So Paul will really build in these first two verses attention of what we used to not have and what we should remember that we did not have, of how we were first cut off before Jesus was cut off in order to save us. And the apostle asks us to remember this by a list of five things. Now one disclaimer, this list of five things by Paul does not make all five things equal. Actually, if we don't have the first thing on the list, as you'll begin to see as I move through the text, hopefully you'll discover, there is no way you can have the other four. doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. And at a moment, and, and, and he's using this illustration, again, to, to speak into a present reality, but show a deeper spiritual truth. And at a moment, the reading could sound like we don't have these things because we weren't born Jewish. But again, as closer as we read a little more closely, I believe we'll begin to see that Paul is hinting at a far more general problem that all humanity needs to remember we had when it came to God. Another way to put this is I'm trying to say if you get the first thing on the list, if you have the first thing on the list, you'll have the other four. If you don't have the first thing on the list, you're not going to have the other four. So what's the first thing we are to remember that we did not have? The first thing that everything else hinges upon is Christ. It's Christ. Paul wants us to remember that we did not have Christ. That there was a time for us as a believer where we did not have Jesus. He was not our Savior. We were distant with him. Well, it's all the rage for billionaires to spend money trying to reach Mars. None of them are building rockets in order to reach heaven. He was a distance from us that we could not travel. Their dreams are limited. But Christian, the apostle, wants us to remember there was a great chasm that once existed between God and us. And in remembering this chasm, the apostle Paul is saying, remember that distance. Remember it. Remember how you could not reach into heaven from earth. And so that you appreciate the bridge that Jesus is, who ties heaven and earth together. Well, maybe travel to Mars in and, and this decade or decades to come will happen. There will never be a bridge that extends from, from earth to Mars in the universe. And yet, there is one who can make a bridge even greater than that. And that is Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants us to remember what it was like not to have him, to have that gap. The second thing Paul asks us, asks us to remember is that we were not of the commonwealth of Israel. And this becomes an interesting one to consider because we think of the land mass of Israel. And, and yes, in one sense that's true. But I, and I think Paul is touching on a deeper truth here. Because... Imagine if I was a person in Ephesus. Imagine if I was a person in the ancient world of Paul. And I went to Jerusalem, and I said, I want to be considered an Israeli. I want to be considered a Jewish citizen. And they go, why do you want to be considered such a thing? Well, I know it's King. I know it's King Jesus. They're not going to grant that as citizenship in the commonwealth of Israel. Just as much as if I had... If I went to modern Israel and I visited modern Israel and I said, you know, can I get citizenship here? And they say, why should we grant you citizenship? Well, I know Israel's king, Jesus. You know, Bibi or whatever, Netanyahu or what have you, they're not going to grant me citizenship based on that. And so it's got to be more than just the earthly reality that's being talked about here. Because knowing Christ, having Christ connects me to the commonwealth of Israel. So this promise, what Paul is trying to have us remember, isn't tied to just a landmass, but a nation that is a unique refuge for all other nations, for all other aliens, for all sojourners in the land. One that allows for citizenship based on knowing Jesus. It's the new Jerusalem, it's the new Israel, that Christ's kingdom that he talked about constantly in his ministry, about ushering in, It's that one that he has set in motion through both his life, his death, and then also his resurrection. The fact that his sacrificial offering was acceptable before God. Because a nation is only as good as it is if it acknowledges the true king. And so there is a greater Israel that we were and are now, through Jesus, a commonwealth member of. And in this final week of Jesus' life that we reflect on the Palm Sunday that we call the Passion, part of what our Lord was doing was establishing that new and greater commonwealth of Israel. Jesus is the promise of our heavenly citizenship. He's our passport. He's our social security card. He is um, our birth certificate into heaven. He is what will identify us and allow us into heaven in the light to come. So the Apostle Paul is saying, remember that you were not always a citizen of God's commonwealth kingdom of Israel. Basically, remember what your citizenship cost. The next thing the Apostle wants us to remember, and this sounds odd at first, is that we were strangers to the covenants of promise. What does that mean? Let's look more closely at this. Paul says we were strangers, that's plural, that's all of us, to the covenants, that's also plural. Covenants are the promises and agreements of God that he made throughout the Old Testament of promise. And that is singular. Why why is promise singular? You would think it would be you were strangers to the covenants of promises. Why this weird interplay between plural and singular? What is Paul trying to say? Is it just that knowing the promises of the Old Testament, things such as the covenant promises given to Adam and Eve, given to Noah, given to Abraham, given to David, given to uh, Jacob and Isaac and others, is that enough? No, it's more than just knowing a great many biblical covenants of the Old Testament. We also need to remember that that there is a singular promise, a fulfilling, singular answer To all covenant promises that we read in Scripture. And who is this single entity in whom, knowing him, we discover God's word is honest and true and God honors his promises? It's the gift of Jesus Christ, who fulfills all of God's covenants. And he did that in the singular work of Jesus. Most importantly for our salvation, it's God through Jesus who has provided the forgiveness of our sins, Freeing us from the chains of death and crushing evil. If we know Christ, we know God has honored his promise. Fourth, the apostle wants us to remember that we are without hope. If point three was looking into the past, point four is looking, point four is looking into the future. The apostle Paul is saying here, remember what it was like looking into your future and not having a secure hope. How awful that was. How terrible that was. Some of us still feel that way, far too often than we like to admit. We look at what's before us in our present circumstances and we are afraid. We don't know what the future holds. But the reality of knowing Christ means we shouldn't so worry over the future. The essential quality of hope itself is based on the idea... That we are so focused on something that we are to receive in the future to come. That even if we do not have it yet, we know there is something that lies ahead that changes all our fortunes. So the Christian message is one that encourages us to think big when it comes to our future hope. It is one that dares us to imagine when it says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. But the Lord has ready for those who love Him. And maybe you're saying, you don't have to be a Christian to have hope. You meet people with hope. But really, you do need to be a Christian to have hope. Far too often in our world, there is this great cultural myth that everyone has a reason for hope. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's actually saying the exact opposite to that. He's actually saying that without Christ, you were hopeless. You didn't have any reason to really hope. Even if you thought you did. Even if you convinced yourself that you did. And let me illustrate this point a little further. Let's imagine both of us were in an airplane, and we get the news the airplane is going to crash. It is going to crash on the ground. And in the airplane, there are two things in great abundance that you and I have access to. We have parachutes, and we have helium balloons. And you be more sensible among us. You see the parachute. You put it on. You jump out the plane. And you will safely land. When you come, the plane comes crashing down on the earth, you will be secure. Because you grab the wise thing. But imagine I did not know a parachute. And so I'm looking and go, why would I put on a backpack with some sheet in it? And some strings? That's a terrible idea. Look at all these balloons. They're floating in air. I can attach these strings to my body. And I can be safe from the impending doom to come. So I place my hope in the balloons. And what's going to happen the moment I step outside the plane? My hopes are going to come crashing down because I had hope in the wrong kind of thing. Too common in our world today is this idea that you just have this like general hope and it's all going to work out. That's not Paul's idea. Balloons won't help you unless there's a lot of balloons and so many balloons, the plane probably wouldn't be crashing. Balloons will not help you in such a moment. Everyone has a hope for heaven, but the Christian uniquely has received Christ to make that future secure. So hope isn't enough. It needs to be a hope in the right kind of thing and lastly, the apostle tells us that we need to remember what it was like to not have God in our day-to-day lives. So the third point was, remember God has fulfilled the promises in the past. The fourth point was, remember that we have a hope secured in the future. And this fifth point is, remember what it was like to live in the presence without God. Past, present, future, all covered these final three points. Remember that there was a time where our day-to-day decisions were not influenced by intimately knowing God. You know, for the borderline religious, those trying to, to be really what the Bible hates neither too hot nor too cold about Jesus in public society, the, pub, the Apostle Paul here can really be an annoying Debbie Downer kind of individual because Christianity doesn't love lukewarmness. Paul here is saying the Christians should be able to remember to some degree what it was like to try to make heads and tails out of the world before knowing and seeking after the things of God and His wisdom boldly. Well, I'm still a sinner, and in many ways uh, it, it's even harder now because I do know the Lord who saved me. And so I cringe at how painful sometimes I get off track in being faithful in my day-to-day life because I know it's not the kind of individual my God has called me to be. You know, what's even more embarrassing and painful to remember? How awful I was even before knowing Christ. The kinds of reasoning and decisions and beliefs I thought were brilliant to hold on to before knowing Christ. So why does the Apostle Paul want me to remember such things? How I was so godless in my present reality before knowing Christ? Why does he bring such things up? because for the Christian, it should create in us an aversion. It should motivate us to be better than our former selves and to strive for a greater righteousness. Why do I not put my hand intentionally on a hot stove? Well, because I made this mistake of touching it before, and I don't want to repeat that mistake. Remembering past sins is not for the purpose of wallowing in them. No, rather, the purpose of remembering past sins is for us To hate what it was like to live in this world without the gift of Jesus Christ. so that is the list of five things we're called to remember by the Apostle. And we were once separated from Christ. That we now are citizens of the true Israel. That in our past, our present, and our future, we have been given a better way through Jesus. And in remembering these five things, the old manure of life. The fact that we were at a time rightly cut off from salvation, from Jesus. We can prepare to rejoice in the growth and the gift And the, in, in reading verse 13, which begins with, But now in Christ Jesus, you all who were once far off, you all who once had a great chasm between you and God, have been brought near. I love this imagery. It makes these... Three verses just have this beautiful movement all throughout them. Because remembering the manure pile was beginning to stink. But now we can move closer because Christ has first come close to us. All that remembering helps remind us that God took that same manure pile of our sins in order to create a new and better growth And a more hopeful spring of Christ's first Easter morning. And the Easter rain in which he now serves on heaven on high today. In verse 12, we remember being far off, separated aliens. But now in verse 13, he is here for us. The distance is closed. I remember um, the birth of Caitlin, our first child. And, of course, as many of you know, we were told to abort Caitlin that she would have health problems that would um, greatly affect her life. And uh, the, the first doctor who we said we will not abort her fired us as patients because he said we were irresponsible. But there was a lot of anxiety as her birth was upon us. And when she was finally born, we weren't even allowed to hold her. She was taken immediately away from us for over an hour and a half, and we weren't allowed to hold her because they were running every test in the book on her. They were determined that something was wrong with her. And I remember, you know, here's this moment where my wife and I are enjoying the birth of our first child, and yet it just has this chaos and terror in the moment because I, I can't be there with my wife. She asked me to go with the child, and I go with the child, and yet I'm not even able to hold my child and I was thinking this week about the nearness of Christ coming to us and thinking about finally when the nurse said, you can hold your baby, and how sweet that moment was of holding my first child and then bringing that baby back and and and, and that baby might see my wife hold the baby. There was a great chasm, there was a great chaos, there was a great separation, and what a sweet joy it was when that gap was closed. Christ is now near to you, Christian. He's near. He's at hand. You can grab a hold of Him. He secured your past. He promises you a future. He's available to you in the present. He's near to you. So how close are you to Him? How close are you to Him? How do you yearn or do you yearn in your daily life to, to truly grab a hold of Him and embrace Him? You live like the world. And how did Christ do it? How did he become so near to us? What brought him near to us, we read at the end of verse 13. It was the shedding of his blood. We were all alienated at one point. We all needed reconciliation with God. So in order for us to draw near to him, Christ shed his blood for us. He allowed himself to be severed and cut off from the collective body of ancient Israel discarded, left for dead, so that he might become the saving king of a new Israel that he established and reigns over. And so Paul says to us in this passage today, remember, you always, you didn't always have a personal and private faith. You once were hopelessly lost. Don't forget it. You once had no past, present, or future. Don't forget it. We were once separated from God's mercy. Don't forget it. And yet Christ came to draw near to you. And so embrace Him. Even though He knew at first He would first be rejected by us. And He foreknew that He would be tossed aside by the world. That we would believe Him to only be fit for the manure pot. And yet through His sacrificial love, a new work began, a new growth, a new life sprang forth, and by him and his blood we have been saved. What a glorious king indeed, and whom we can proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we once were separated from you. Bodily, physically, spiritually, in our past, in our present, and even in the future sins that we would commit. All of what we saw in our lives testified of the fact that we did not remember our God who created us. We did not honor Him or respect Him. We did not glorify Him as King. We were not His citizens. And yet 2,000 years ago, You marched upon a city and through your work in a single week but really through the mortal life of Jesus Christ you have now created a kingdom that will never fail. You have now given us a hope of a world without end. You have now shown that you fulfill all the promises of the past in the person and work of Jesus Christ. What a glorious God you are. Let us be found always praising you in the congregation of the Lord, remembering what we once were, but now delighting in what we have become through Jesus. Amen.